The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without laws, without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may, by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. One of Luther's early books was called The Freedom of the Christian. I think it's 1521 or 22. And Luther, in his own style, opens up that book, The Freedom of the Christian, with these, really these memorable words. He says, to make the way smoother for the unlearned, for only them do I serve, I shall set down the following two propositions concerning the freedom and bondage of the Spirit. And then he says these words, a Christian is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You're both of those things, right? The Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. But Paul gets, or Luther got that right from Paul, right in our text. Verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And so as Paul is going through developing this argument, he starts off, first of all, by saying, for although being free from all men, this, of course, picks up right where he started in this chapter in verse 1, where he asks the question, am I not free? And the answer, of course, is yes, Paul, you are free. And so he returns to that theme. And when he says that he's free from all men, Paul has very clearly in in view the idea that because he belongs to Christ and because he is the slave of Christ and because Christ is his master and in fact his only master, that means that he is free from all men. There's this wonderful sense of of freedom that comes by being enslaved to Jesus Christ. And if there was anything about Paul that, that he clearly understood, it's that he was the slave of Christ. Um, some of our translations will take the terms for slave, doulos, as um, um, bond servant. Uh, Paul uses the term that would reflect the idea that he is um, not some sort of highfalutin domestic servant. He is the lowest of low when it comes to simply being a slave. But he is only the slave of one, and that is Jesus Christ. And then he says, because of that, in a sense, because I belong to Christ, because 
I am Christ's slave and he alone is my master, then I have enslaved myself to all. And you get this wonderful paradox in Paul. And so in his, in his freedom, because of his slavery to Christ, he willingly becomes the servant of others. Okay? And so it is, uh, on the one hand, his uh, slavery to Christ is because Christ in his grace has subdued him and has made him his slave, right? That's what Jesus does to us, right? He subdues us. His grace lays hold of us and subdues us and, and, and makes us the slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. And, and in a real sense, that slavery is a, a magnificent coercion by sovereign grace. Okay? But because of that slavery, we then have a freedom to turn around and voluntarily now become the servant's of others. And what, what Paul is getting at here is that he's going to be absolutely willing to manifest that servanthood by accommodating himself to whatever the situation requires for the sake of others, so that others can actually hear the gospel. And so, what's the connection between being a slave of Christ and then? voluntarily or willingly uh, becoming the slave of others? And the answer is, the connection is Jesus himself. So Gordon Fee says, Jesus himself is the paradigm of such servanthood. Free in order to become a slave or a servant to all. This is surely the ultimate expression of of truly Christian because it is truly Christ-like behavior, right? And so, if I'm a slave of Christ and free in regards to all men, but enslaved to Christ, and then I look to Christ as my master who did what? Who voluntarily became a servant. So, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. If that If that one is my master, then I follow in his footsteps by becoming the voluntary servant of others. So let's just be be clear that this is not um, popular nor easy. Right? The idea of being the slave or the servant of others voluntarily, um, that, that just simply rubs us the wrong way. And it rubs us the wrong way um, by, uh, it goes against the grain of our nature. I don't want to be somebody else's servant. I don't want somebody over me. I don't want somebody to actually tell me what to do. So Jason preached, by the way, a fantastic sermon Sunday afternoon on on who is the greatest. And it was absolutely just beautiful Sunday afternoon watching Ariel just put this into practice. And so there it is. It's snowing at our house. And and I said, you know what, honey, I left a big box of books out in the truck. And uh, I said, why don't you apply Jason's sermon and go get those books for me? And uh, she's like, okay. And she went out and brought the books back in. And, and uh, she says, anything else you want me to do for you? And I said, well, as a matter of fact. And I had a list. And she just, she just was so thrilled to be able to apply the word that day. <laughs> it rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it, though? Right? Doesn't it? So the whole idea of putting somebody else above ourselves goes against our Adamic grain. And yet it's what we're called to as Christians, to actually put others above ourselves. And so Paul says in verse 19, this this magnificent 
statement, although I'm actually free from all men. In other words, no man is Lord of my conscience. No man can dictate to me um, what, what my Christian life is. I have one master, and that's Jesus. But because Jesus is my master, and he emptied himself and became a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, then now I can actually now freely, because of Jesus, empty myself, pour myself out for the sake of others, become subject to others voluntarily for their good. Then Paul says the reason. He says, in order that I might win the more. When he says win, he's talking, of course, about that I might that I might save the more, that I might bring all the more into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. And so Paul says, when, when I think about my life, the reason that voluntarily subjecting myself to all is, is so appealing to me is because it's actually through that vehicle that I actually can win all the more. For Paul, freedom and the exercise of his rights was not his goal. The salvation of others was his goal. Now, notice, notice the language that I might win the more. You know, some of us, and Paul's, by the way, going to later say that I might save some. How many of you actually think Paul saved anybody? Sometimes we're so like theologically persnickety that we can't even talk like the Bible talks, <laughs> all right? And yet Paul says that I might win the more and later that I might save some. And I just want to say that Paul, Paul is always thinking in two dimensions that are not contradictory. On the one hand, Paul is is always thinking in terms of, of, of a big God who is sovereign, who is in control of all things, um, in a sense, sort of the, the press box view that is, that is the big picture view of a sovereign God who's working out all things after the counsel of his will. And Paul ministers within, within that context of a sovereign God who has who is elected and who is drawing and who is saving but then he also he also looks at ministry through the lens of personal responsibility and human action and for Paul those two things are not contradictory but those two things are compatible with each other so Paul could on the one hand say I'm going to labor and I'm going to strive um Second uh, uh, Timothy two ten. I do all things for the sake of the elect, so they might be saved. Right. That's. It, by the way, if you can't put those two things together, I do all things, suffer all things, endure all things. By the way, Paul suffered and endured a lot of things, way more than probably all of us put together in this room. Right. And so he suffered and endured all those things. Why? For the sake of the elect, so they might be saved. Did Paul think on the one hand that there was a chance that the elect would never be saved? And the answer is no, Paul didn't think that the elect could not be saved. The elect were going to be saved, and in fact, election guaranteed their salvation. But election also guaranteed the secondary means by which the elect came to salvation. And Paul saw those secondary means as his enduring all things and laboring to the point of exhaustion and doing whatever it took in order to save some. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't all of a sudden, you know, stop and, and, and get a brain freeze because he's thinking, well, am I a Calvinist or an Arminian? They're just both true. And so for Paul, he says, I enslave myself to everyone so that I might win all the more. Then in, in verses 20 to 22a, he gives some specific illustrations of what he is talking about. And they're interesting illustrations, right? So he says, and to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I might win Jews. And you're thinking to yourself, 
Paul, you were a Jew. <laughs> what are you talking about? Now, what's, what, what Paul's doing is Paul's going to give a number of examples here about, and, and, and this, is, this is important phrasing, how he accommodates himself to certain social settings for the sake of evangelism. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now that there is a wrong way to think about that, and then there is an apostolic way to think about that. Okay, So, the first one, it's, you, you can just hear it's, it's actually, it's got a wonderful cadence to it. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I might win Jews. And Paul was a Jew, so how can he become as a Jew? Well, the answer is actually quite simple because Paul was a, first and foremost, a disciple of the risen Messiah, right? He is a follower of Jesus, so religiously, he was no longer a Jew. Okay? Ethnically, he was still a Jew. Religiously, he was no longer a Jew. And in fact, in many of the customs derived from the Jewish law, he no longer practiced those things. So for instance, Paul, um, his view of circumcision, right? Circumcision is one of the Jewish identity markers. And for Paul... Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. What matters is a new creation, Galatians 6.15. Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. What matters is keeping the law of God, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.19. And so Paul had a view of circumcision, which departed from the Jewish religion. He also had a different view of dietary laws now. In fact, the apostle Paul um, actually was so liberated that he came to uh, enjoy one of God's greatest blessings next to coffee, which is bacon. So when Paul would go and he would go to the diner, Paul would order BLTs or pulled pork or, and, and just loved it. And, and I have no doubt that as he bowed his head to pray, he was like, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the new covenant that freed me and now has empowered me to enjoy barbecue. Okay? And so for Paul, dietary laws were no longer observed. Kosher food laws were no longer observed. In fact, Paul was, Paul was so radical that um, he could say that whatever is not of faith is sin. But if your conscience doesn't condemn you, this is Romans 14. And so Paul didn't follow the uh, Jewish food laws. So Paul's whole, whole worldview was radically changed because of Jesus and because of the new covenant. And so when it came to imposing Jewish customs and Jewish law on Gentiles, Paul was absolutely adamant that that was a compromise of the gospel. So, we, we, you have to think about this in, in, in two very clear ways. So, there is this sense where Paul says, so, um, to Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I might win Jews. Now, what that did not mean was the idea of imposing Jewish law on Gentiles, because Paul saw that as a denial of the gospel, and you have the whole book of Galatians to actually make the case that that's exactly what Paul thought. In fact, when, when Peter, so Paul talks about when Peter came to Antioch, he was actually eating, having table fellowship with the Gentiles. That is, he was eating uh, non-kosher food with the Gentiles. But then when certain brethren from James came down from Jerusalem, then Peter withdrew that table fellowship and Paul... This is Galatians 2. Paul confronts Peter to his face in the presence of all and says, how can you, as a Jew, compel Gentiles to live as a Jew? You are no longer walking in accordance with what? The gospel. So Paul saw that as a fundamental denial of the gospel. 
So when, when the gospel was at stake, Paul was absolutely adamant. Jewish regulations, Jewish law should never be imposed on Gentiles. The goal of the gospel is not to make Gentiles into Jews. Okay? But when Paul is taking the gospel to the Jews, do you know what he will do? He will make unbelievable accommodations in order not to be a hindrance to the Jews hearing the gospel. The gospel in and of itself is going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be an offense. But Paul wanted to reduce as many offenses as possible because the cross would be offense enough. So, uh, Acts chapter 16, Paul's getting ready to continue on his missionary journey, and they meet, he meets up with a young man by the name of Timothy. And Paul is preaching, and Timothy is a new believer. Timothy's mother is a Jew. Timothy's father was a Gentile. And as Paul is preaching, Timothy's heart is, is just throbbing with, with missionary zeal and excitement. And you could imagine he just is, is looking as a new believer who is spoken well of by all of the disciples. Here is this young man, zealous for the Lord, and the apostle Paul comes up to him after a church service one night, and he says, Timothy, I want you to be on my missionary team. Wow! What a privilege, right? What a privilege. And Timothy was like, hot diggity dog, I can't believe it. Paul asked me to go on a missionary journey with him. And then Paul says, now there is one little thing. I happen to have a Swiss army knife here. And uh, if you're going to go with me, so we have this missionary pattern of going to the Jew first, right? Then to the Greek. So um, if you want to join up, you need to be circumcised. Why? Was Paul compelled to have Titus circumcised? And the answer is absolutely not. Titus is a Gentile. Now, there was pressure, Galatians 2 again, pressure to have Titus circumcised. And Paul says, we did not yield to them for a second. No way. Now, you've got Timothy, Jewish mother. Guess how the Jews are going to view Timothy as a Jew? Are they going to listen to Paul if one of his companions is an uncircumcised Jew? And the answer is absolutely not. That violates all of Paul's credibility to a Jewish Jewish audience. And so he has Timothy circumcised. You might also remember in Acts chapter 23, Paul um, arrives and the brethren meet him and they say, um, you are spoken of against everywhere as speaking against the law of Moses and telling Jewish parents not to circumcise their children. And so what did Paul do in order to actually um, get a, a, an audience with the Jewish people? That is, he took a group of young men and actually went to the synagogue, paid vows, and actually got a ceremonial haircut. Why? Not because he thought that was required of God but because he realized that in order to reach Jews, he needed to be as a Jew in order that he might win some. Okay. And so for Paul, this, this, it, Paul, Paul is not um, uh, contradictory. He understood when he needed to accommodate himself. He understood when he needed to stand fast. And, and both of those actually were motivated by the gospel. And so when he realized that the Jews... If they were going to listen to him, he needed to be kosher. He would become kosher for the sake of the gospel. The next line, or the next couple lines, is interesting too. To those under the law, as under the law, as under law. Although I myself not being under law, in order that I might win those under law. Now, this category was certainly 
include Jewish people, but then it would be just absolutely um, uh, repetitive. Uh, Paul may have in mind, it's hard to tell for sure, but you might remember that not only did you have the Jewish people who were under law, but you also had a group of Gentiles that were called, anybody remember? God-fearers. God-fearers. And they were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel. They were Gentiles who went to synagogue. They were Gentiles who actually believed, listened to, followed the law of Moses with one exception, and that was typically circumcision. So, um, by the way, if a Gentile did yield to circumcision, then he became a full-fledged proselyte, okay? So you had God-fearers and you had proselytes, and these were Gentiles, and these were Gentiles like, for instance, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And so it's very possible that Paul's talking here about both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but notice Paul's qualifier here. He says, so to those under law, as under law, although I myself not being under law, in order that I might win those under law. So again, Paul's actually saying, in a sense, um, I made whatever accommodations I could, but Paul also is saying something else that's incredibly important, and that is, but I did not put myself back under law. Now... For Paul, that little expression, under law, is loaded, all right? It's an absolutely loaded expression, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in just a, a second because Paul's going to continue to qualify. Then notice the next category. So he goes to those under law, then he moves now to, but to the lawless, okay? So this description... Uh, the, the, the Greek word for law is namos, and so ah, so the little alpha privative negates, right? So ah namos means either without law or lawless, okay? So for instance, uh, theist, and then an atheist, so theist, one who believes in God, atheist, one who does not believe in God, namos, law, ah namos, without law, no law. So Paul then turns around and he says, so to the lawless, to those without law, then what does he say? Although not being apart from God's law, wait a second, I thought he just said that he wasn't under law in the previous category. Well, just hold on. But subject to the law of Christ, notice, in namos of Christ, in order that I might gain the lawless. So who's the lawless? America's most wanted? Just Gentiles. Just ordinary pagan Gentiles who lived as if God had never said anything about how they should conduct themselves. Lawless, those without law. Now, What's, what's fascinating about this category is that there's a play on words here. So, to the lawless as lawless, okay? So, basically, uh, to Gentiles as Gentiles, but to the lawless as lawless, although not being apart from the law of God. Now, you know why Paul has to say this, right? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Corinthians, Okay? The Corinthians were, you know, the Corinthians would have go, yeah, lawless to the lawless, right? And Paul says, but not without the law of God. In other words, you know, I, I, I accommodate myself to those who are without law, but I, that does not mean that I conduct myself in a lawless way. I don't conduct myself in a wicked way or a sinful way way, there is still a moral code from God that I live by, and so he doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding with the Corinthians, right? And so he says, not without God's law, but subject to 
the law of Christ. So, so there's three things that Paul says in these two categories that we need to, to think about for a second. And the first is this. He says, I'm not under the law. Which means, first of all, that Paul was not any longer under the old covenant. Okay. But for Paul, being under law was more than just a, a covenantal idea. Being under law also meant being under sin, under the bondage of sin, and under death. In fact, under law is, um, and you can see this, we, we saw this when we studied Galatians. For Paul, under law is is a term that describes an epoch or an era. And that epoch or era of under law is also marked by Adam and sin and death. So, God has set us free by His Spirit from the law of sin and death, right? So, in that sense, Paul is not under law. He's not under the old covenant. He's not under the law of sin and death. Why? Because the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set him free from the law of sin and death. And so, what that also means then is he's not under the ceremonies of the old covenant, and he's not under the dietary regulations of the old covenant, and he... uh, He's not trying to figure out how to apply the Mosaic legislation across the board to every area of his life. Now, he does try to figure out what it means that you don't muzzle the ox, right? So the law is not irrelevant, okay? But as far as a covenant, as far as a means of justification, as far as uh, the mode of both sin and death, to be under the law is to be in bondage to sin, right? The law cannot save. By the way, the law cannot sanctify either. Okay? The law all by itself does not, cannot sanctify. Okay? And so Paul says, I'm not under the law. But then he turns around, and the second thing that he says in this section is, but I am not without the law of God. So, for Paul, there, there has to be some, some kind of fundamental distinction as he thinks about the law of God. And, and, and I would say that, that basically what Paul has in mind here is what we would call the moral law of God. That which is reflected, for instance, in Romans chapter 7, where the law is holy and the commandment is righteous and good. The law is a reflection of the holy character of God. And so, he says, in in a sense, even though I'm not under law and all that entails, I don't live as if I am an antinomian. I don't live as if I am lawless. I live still according to the revelation of God's moral character, and that means I don't live as without law. And then the third thing he says is, I'm under or subject to the law of Christ. Paul uses that expression, law of Christ, in Galatians 6, 2. And so there's this long debate as to, is the, is the law of Moses the same as the law of Christ? And the answer is yes and no. Okay. In one sense, Jesus fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. He fulfills the Mosaic Law, right? Um, So we don't, for instance, bring a lamb to church anymore because Jesus fulfilled the sacrifice that was foreshadowed in the Levitical laws, right? Um, There is a sense in which Jesus fulfills the Mosaic Covenant for us. And so in one sense the law of Christ is going to be, uh, let's say, a little different, but I would say that in principle it ends up being the same. So, this is how I would explain the law of Christ. The law of Christ takes into account 
the new covenant and the role of the Spirit in the new covenant. So what happens in the new covenant? Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, what does God do for us in the new covenant? He takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. So what is the idea? The idea is, is we have a hard, resistant heart. God takes that out, puts in its place a heart of flesh, which means a soft, pliable heart, right? Then, what does he do? In the New Covenant, what does he write on our hearts? He writes his law on our hearts. Okay? So there has to be some degree of continuity between the law of God and the law of Christ, because in the New Covenant, he writes his law on our hearts. And so, by the way, that's, uh, that's the same promise that's made in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. I will put my law upon their hearts, right? Now, here's, here's the great part. So under the old covenant, where was the law? The law was written on tablets of stone. Under the new covenant, the law is now written on our hearts, under the old covenant, you had the, the dictum, do this and live. Under the new covenant, it is, and I will put my spirit within you, and you will walk in my ways. In other words, in the new covenant, what ends up happening is there is this, there is this magnificent, glorious internalizing of that which was external under the Old Covenant. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't Old Covenant saints that didn't experience an internal work. But what I am saying is, under the Old Covenant, not everybody in the Old Covenant experienced that circumcision of heart. In the New Covenant, who experiences the circumcision of heart and the indwelling of the Spirit and the law written on the heart and everybody knowing God? And the answer is everybody in the new covenant. All right? Under the old covenant, you can see this in Deuteronomy 29, 4, 30, verse 6. Um, you can see this in a number of places where most of the covenant people did not have a heart that knew God. And yet they were still in the covenant. Why? Because it was both a national or physical and spiritual covenant. So not all of Israel is Israel. Okay. Okay. Under the new covenant, this is why I'm not a Presbyterian. Okay. Seriously. This is why I'm not a Presbyterian. Because under the new covenant, everybody in the covenant knows God. And I, I, I love lots of Presbyterians. Most of my heroes are dead Presbyterians, okay? But the problem is, is that the idea of who's in the covenant, believers and their children by virtue of baptism, to me, ends up, in a sense, being a reflection of old covenant dynamics, not new covenant dynamics. Okay? Old covenant dynamics is a church within the church, so to speak, in Israel within Israel, okay, those that are all physically circumcised, the males, externally, under the new covenant, circumcision is what? Romans 2, 28, 29. Circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit. And who gets that? Everybody in the new covenant. And they'll all know me, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, from the, from the least to the greatest. All right? So... So, by the way, that, that's, that's more explanation than probably was necessary, but that's why I'm not a Presbyterian. It has nothing to do, or I should say, it doesn't have primarily to do with the mode of baptism as much as it has to do with the nature of the church and who belongs to the church. Okay? That's why I'm a Baptist, is because under the new covenant, you have a better covenant in which everybody who is truly in the covenant, notice my qualification, everybody truly in the covenant, 
Sometimes churches make mistakes and admit people into membership that aren't really born again, okay? But that's by accident, not on purpose. Presbyterians do that on purpose. We do it on accident. <laughs> All right, so, <laughs> so, so here's, here's back to the law of Christ. Okay, so I take the law of Christ to be the indwelling spirit empowering me to fulfill the law and the first requirement of the law is love. And so Paul tells us in both Romans 13 and Galatians 5 that love is the fulfillment of the law. So a new covenant believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit is in lawed to Christ, fulfills subject to the law of Christ and fulfills the law of Christ by love, which is only enabled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And by the way, when Paul talks about the law in Romans 13, 8 through 10, and Galatians 5, 13 to 16... When he talks about law and fulfillment of the law by love, he is actually talking about the Old Testament law. So I don't fulfill that law in order to be justified. I fulfill that law by love as a result of being justified. I don't fulfill that law in order to be regenerated. I fulfill that law by love as a result of being regenerated. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So... Why in the world do you think Paul actually makes these qualifying statements? I'm not without the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ because knowing the Corinthians, such a qualification would be absolutely necessary. Now, what's the next category? To the weak? This is how I would translate it. I became to the weak, weak, in order that I might win the weak. There's something different about this, isn't there? Look at the the phrase. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. There should be a number of things about this that catches your attention. And... um, you know what, through the course of studying our Bibles, if, if, if you know, we learn as a result how to read our Bibles better, then that's one of the great results of studying God's Word together, right? So I look at this. So to the Jews, I became what? As a Jew. To those under law, as under law. To those without law, as without law. To the weak, I became weak. You see that? Something else about that pass about this is that he goes from overt Jew Gentile categories to now weak. So he's he's shifting gears, right? That's different, okay? Jew, under law, without law, Jew-Gentile categories, weak. It's different, okay? So notice he says, I become weak, not I become as weak. He says, weak, which is not Jew-Gentile category. And there's something else. There's no counterbalance to the strong I became strong. By the way, there'd be no need. If we understand what Paul's talking about, there's no need for him to actually say, and to the strong, I became strong. But when he says this, to the weak, I became weak in order that I might 
And then notice it, when the week. So then something else is introduced in this, in this section, and that is he goes from lost Jewish people that he's trying to win to lost Jewish and Gentile God-fears that he's trying to win to lost Gentiles who are lawless that he's trying to win now to the weak. And in the context, going all the way back to chapter 8, the weak are actually in the church. So, so follow me, because this is, this is important. In what way, then, does the weak fit in with the category of Paul trying to win? So if winning is evangelizing for the purpose of salvation, in what way is he trying to win the weak? Are you, are you tracking with me? Okay, on, on why this is a big question. If we understand Paul's theology of the perseverance of the saints, and we take into account the weight of 1 Corinthians 8, 11, destroying a brother because of food, one for whom Christ died, then we actually get a clearer picture that winning somebody is bigger and broader than just getting somebody through the door of salvation. Okay? What's, what's the weak in danger of, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 11, being destroyed because of food offered to idols? So Paul's concern is not just what we might consider conversion, but Paul's concern is also perseverance. So he wants to win the weak. In other words, he wants to make sure that the weak continue on in the faith and are not destroyed because of food. By the way, um, uh, uh, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go to him. If he repents, you have one, same word, one your brother, all right? So, so I would suggest that, by the way, not only is Paul now coming back to his initial concern with dealing with the weak, but he is he's putting it in a perspective that we desperately need to hear today. Remember, there are... There are three tenses to salvation, right? We've gone over this a hundred times, right? You can speak biblically like this, I have been saved. But you can also speak biblically, I am being saved. And you can also speak biblically in these terms, I shall be saved. So there is a past and a present and a future to the doctrine of salvation. And for Paul, one of the important things is the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And so his goal is is to preach Christ in such a way that Christ would be so formed in uh, in Christ's people that they would, in fact, persevere to the end and be saved. So when he says that I might win, I become weak so that I might win the weak, what he's saying is is that the the, the weak, as long as they're in danger of being destroyed, I have to try to win them. Now that winning is going to look different than trying to win a Jew or trying to win a Gentile or trying to win a proselyte. That, That winning is going to look different, but that winning looks more like going after somebody that's in danger to make sure that they don't stop running the race. And that winning is just as important as the first kind. Thomas Watson, 
you're going to read the Puritans, start with Thomas Watson. He's the easiest Puritan to read. Watson said, every sermon is a salvation sermon because every sermon brings you a step closer to heaven or a step nearer to hell. So, do we preach salvation? And the answer is, we preach salvation in ways that go far beyond what most people think about preaching salvation. So many people think about preaching salvation as, um, you know, so Billy Graham died today. And of course, one of the things that, and, and, and we should, we should be, thankful to God for Billy Graham and so forth. But one of the things that Billy Graham did is, what does he do? He gave altar calls and people came forward. And, um, and I'm sure that many people are going to be in heaven because of the labors of Billy Graham. But the fact is, is that we think of salvation as American evangelicals. That's what we think about in salvation. And when we are really uh, filled with New Testament theology, m- salvation is... What happens today, too? When I was 13, I needed Jesus to save me. I needed to be justified and reconciled and brought into his family. And he did that. And he saved me from the penalty of my sin. But when I woke up this morning, I still needed Jesus to save me. I didn't need to be justified all over again or reconciled all over again or adopted all over again. But just as sure as he saved me from the penalty of sin, I needed him today to save me from the power of sin. Right? I I need him to rescue me every day. And so you you know what you do? You learn to pray new covenant prayers like... So you promised to make me walk in your ways, Lord. So make me walk in your ways. Keep me. I need him to save me tomorrow. And when I'm laying on my deathbed, I'll need him to save me then. And then when I close my eyes in death, he will save me again. And then when the trumpet sounds and this body is raised imperishable, my salvation will be consummated and I will be finally saved. By the way, you may be completely saved right now, but you won't be finally saved until you get a resurrected body. Because salvation is not just what happens to your soul. The entirety of your being. God promises. Does, God, doesn't, God doesn't go, oh man, I'm so glad those bodies are done. High cholesterol. <laughs> right? I mean, he's going to redeem the body. So I need him to save me. I need him to save me every minute. I need Jesus to rescue me. And I, I need Jesus to rescue me from me. I mean, I've often thought, you know, the devil could drop dead in, right in front of me and I not even notice, and I still need Jesus to save me, save me from me. We could live in Puritan New England, pure, pristine, moral. By the way, all that's a myth. Okay. I could live in a monastery. I'd need Jesus to save me. And so when Paul says the weak become weak in order to save the weak, in order to win the weak, this is what he's talking about. Make sure the weak make it. And then he says, about one minute, verse 22b, all things to all men. To all men I become all... Now, now, you have to understand, when he says all things, all these things, 
He doesn't mean like to the pot smokers, I became a pot smoker, okay? To the monster truck drivers, I became a monster truck driver, right? All things is clearly not an unlimited statement. So here it is. To all men, I've become all these things in order, I love this, that by any and all means, I might save some. There's again Paul's compatibilism. And then he says, I do all things because of the gospel in order that I might become a fellow partaker of it. And so what we'll do next week is we'll pick up with this phrase in order that I might become a fellow partaker of it because that's a really important phrase. But notice, I do all things because of the gospel. Isn't it true that we just conveniently forget that people are perishing? Your neighbor, your family member. It's just easy just to conveniently forget that people are perishing. And it's even more convenient to forget that those who perish actually will spend eternity in hell, separated from the love of God. They won't be separated from God himself. They will experience the full measure of his justice and his holiness. By the way, that is what will make hell, hell to the unbeliever. Is that God in his holiness will be there. Do we actually really think about this? I know it's easy just to forget about it. It's easy not even to worry about it. It's easy just to focus on the things about this life. But when Paul says, I do everything for the sake of the gospel, he's getting at this truth that that, that the gospel reminds him constantly of the eternal verities of heaven and hell. And there's a heaven to be won and, and a hell to be avoided at all costs. And Paul says, the gospel... It's all about the gospel, and it's all about people hearing the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you know what I'm willing to do? I'm willing to accommodate myself in, in all kinds of circumstances in order not to be a hindrance so that I can get that message out. I was thinking about this late this afternoon. Many of us could come to a passage like this and talk a long time about all the abuses of I become all things to all men and never get around to actually thinking about how we should apply that to our own lives and become all things to all men. We're good at that kind of exegesis, aren't we? These guys do that and that and that, and that's just awful, and they're compromisers and all of that, and that yet we never get around to actually thinking about how am I supposed to become all things to all men. God help us. God help us to see that there's a world around us that's perishing. And there could be people sitting near you in this room who are in danger. Just because you're sitting here, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's good that you're here. It's good that you're under the means of grace. But it's no guarantee. There'll be children here that are without Christ. You die in a car accident on the way home. It's tragic. And so it's not just people out there, it's people in here. And so let's make sure that we're all about the gospel. Doing what we do because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd forgive us for all the times that we didn't talk about the things that ultimately matter. And we pray that you would help us to adopt Paul's mindset 
and his passion to do whatever it takes to get a hearing. Father, we know at the end of the day that you're the one that saves sinners. But we also know that you use us in the process and we pray that you would help us to be more eager and more faithful to be in the process. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.